the reason we aim for great is because you aim for good, you'll miss. And sometimes you'll hit great, and sometimes you'll hit poor. But if you aim for great, sometimes you'll hit good, and sometimes you'll hit exceptional. Today on the Happy Workplace Project, we're joined by Nick Court, the CEO of the People Experience Hub, who are specialists in employee engagement and employee experience. This is a great conversation in which Nick gives us insights into what drives engagement and performance, why people leave organisations, and what the general trends are amongst the best companies to work for. Enjoy the episode. Good morning, Nick. Fantastic to have you on the Happy Workplace Project. Welcome aboard. I'm really looking forward to our conversation today. I wondered if we could start with you talking through the journey that's got you to the point where you are currently CEO of the People Experience Hub. So it's a strange journey. So if I think back to, I'm going to go way back. I mean, I'm I'm old enough so this journey could take the whole podcast, but I'll, I'll try and like keep it keep it to snippets. So. When I went to college, I was going to be an art teacher. That was 100% what I was going to be, or a tattooist. I hadn't quite worked out one of those two things, and neither of those things happened. But I did art and computers, computer programming and stuff like that at college. And I actually ended up being a welder. And then I ended up working at Tesco in a warehouse um, where I was a forklift truck driver and a picker and all the rest of it. And I became the trade union a local trade union official, so he used to do all the pay negotiations for that site and a few other sites. And I had a meeting with a uh, personnel manager, as they were called back in those days, a lady called Linda Avis. And she said to me, she said, the, the critical success factors for being a great trade union rep or trade union official are the same critical success factors for being a great people manager or a great HR person, because it's about care great outcomes it's about fairness and it, it's about that positive outcome always stuck with me and anyway she put me into a role in payroll and I ended up becoming a payroll manager ended up owning HR systems at Tesco got to have a go at everything beauty of working for a huge organization like that. you get to have a go at doing so many different things so it's great so you know I was doing pay negotiations with board level directors in one role I was implementing HR technology in another Got to a point when I said, I've done this 16 years in, I've done everything I can, and I jumped ship. And I suddenly realized that the world of Tesco is huge, and even larger organizations aren't that big. So, you know, I jumped out from there into a food manufacturing role, looking after reward for the UK, HR systems for the UK. Left there, went to another role, and realized I was going to keep jumping because I was solving problems, getting stuff done, and then moving on. And I set my own company up then. And ultimately, that's what led to this. I didn't know what I wanted to do. And I set up a company that's, that specialized in colleague experience, that specialized in culture, HR tech, you know, a bit of rewards, people analytics and data. And I was just living my best life doing all these projects and decided to build some stuff ourselves. And that's where the People Experience Hub came from. Brilliant. So I'm really interested to understand a bit more about the business so if you could explain to us what you do and also give us some insight into how you describe the culture of the People Experience Hub as well. We provide effectively three things. 
what do we what do we go out to market with and talk to companies about? So number one is we provide great technology. And that technology is about employee feedback surveys, you know, everything from candidate experience to exit interviews, that life cycle stuff, it's pulse surveys, it's specialist surveys around well-being, engagement surveys, that kind of thing. So being able to do that, but with great visualization and solving all the problems. So I came from a world of it's slow, it's clunky, or it was tech tech led. Tech companies are after the margin. They're not necessarily focused on solving the problem. People companies are so focused on solving the problem, but they don't have great tech. So we had to do something where the tech was great. So we sell tech. And then what we do is we help people deliver that tech and we help people understand what's going on in their business. Second part of our business is our people. So Rob Robson, who's our director of people science, the majority of our people sit within his space. So organizational psychology, data and analytics, statistical analysis, client delivery workshops, all of that kind of stuff. So helping people really get a, a successful program of employee listening launched, and then also stepping in and helping people understand how to get the most out of that. And then the third part of that is our framework. So framework kind of sits over the top of all of this stuff. And our framework really is about helping organizations move, move beyond engagement to to drive what, what the levers I can pull in an organization that will enable positive people outcomes, retention and motivation and to perform and intention to stay, all of that kind of stuff. That's that's what we do. That's what we do. And I hope we do it well. We're always learning. Though. We're always learning. And how about the culture of the business? How would you describe that? Evolving is probably the it's probably the best way to describe it. So you know we started we started in 2019 properly. So just before the pandemic, and but it was just me and my business partner Ben at the time. So we we started the business, and you know we employed our first employee in 2019, Naomi, who's still with us today as our head of sales and marketing. And you know the culture was very much a startup culture. You know, tiny little office, ideas being thrown around, quick deployment. 2020, who knew a pandemic was coming, but grew actually in the pandemic. So we. We said the best way to get through any situation like this is my retailer background here is you trade you trade your way out and you do it with authenticity. So we suddenly went through this growth spurt into 2021 where we suddenly had to work out how do we go from three people to seven people and manage that. So we go, we went through there was frictions, there were great times, there was laughter and there was tears. But overall, it was about a striving towards a goal. And we've grown again since. And I'd say that the, the culture evolves in a startup business at pace. And where are we today? I think we are a, col- a collaborative business, but not as collaborative as we could be. I think we are a supportive business. We can always be better at supporting our people. I think that we live our values can always do it better and I think that's probably the best way to describe our culture is whatever we do we'll try and do it well and whatever we do we'll try and see how we can do it better but it is people focus people focus for sure so Nick as experts in employee engagement what have you seen over the years as to what needs to be in place to optimize people engagement within organizations as a general trend I think I'd always start with intention 
So if the intention isn't there and the belief isn't there, then I think it will probably either fail at an organizational level or it will succeed because individuals in the organization have a different approach to that organization. So it's people making it happen and there's the risk. So the risk, if that's the case, is those people can leave, those people can change their minds, those people can so not have a great experience and not be as far behind it or behind it as they want to be. So I think the first thing about what needs to be in place to optimize engagement is actually organizational intention that they are going to treat people well, that they are going to be a caring organization, that they want to have the best for their people, but the, the engagement is not a nebulous concept. I think that's the, they, they, an organization that's got over the hurdle of saying, but what is engagement and moves forward with, we're going to treat our people well and we're looking for positive outcomes will be more successful than somebody who's still in the mire of, but you can't describe what engagement is to me. And so I think the first thing is around intention and, and it's intention to do that at an organizational level. And that's people at the top living the values, people at the top showing that it's important to them and showing that they care. But then it's also about then turning that into action. So turning intention into action and saying that we will strive for better, strive to change, and we'll create an environment where people can do that. And then we get into that environment piece. So if you're creating an environment this is that optimization piece. Because what is engagement? Yeah, engagement, it spans too many things. This isn't the, this isn't the podcast probably to unknit engagement. <laughs> but if you sit there and say engagement sits across a few parts of the business, then creating an environment where people are feel safe to grow, they feel safe to make mistakes, they feel safe to challenge without fear of consequence, so in terms of optimizing the engagement, what needs to be in place is an environment that's been created for the future where people can do all that stuff, you know, and that, and again, it goes back to that cycle back to intentional. And you're, one of the things you'll probably notice is what I haven't done is listed a load of tools. Hmm. Haven't listed employee surveys and focus groups and HR teams and great onboarding experiences delivered by great ATS solutions and stuff like that. Because the reality is you can have great engagement and have none of those things. You can have great people experience work and have none of those things. Because intention and design and action were the things that you you did. And I think like I think that's really important. The tools are there to either augment what you're doing, enrich what you're doing, or to automate what you're doing. Let's take the conversation to the other end of the spectrum and have a think about why people leave jobs. So what's your data telling you as to the tipping point as to when someone hands in their notice, what drives it? It's interesting because when we look across things like X interviews, but also across other surveys where people talk about intention to stay, and if they're not intended to stay, what, what are the reasons for that? So when we when you look about why do people leave, the, the result that an individual will give us tends to always be number one tends to always be career progression so it tends to be i'm going to go and progress my career and the second one is always work environment and when when you look at that you know people talk about career progression in a few different ways but when we talk about career progression we absolutely mean i'm going to go and do a bigger job i'm going to go and do a job that's going to have more breadth is going to challenge me more 
and all the rest of it. And I think when we look at what are the reasons for people leaving, that's quite a transactional thing. It's quite a transactional question. You know, so why do people leave? They leave for career progression. That's what the stats tell us. We look at what is the reverse of that and says, why do, why do people, what, what create, what's the environment that creates that where somebody will stay that drives the intention to stay? We don't actually see this being a complete opposite. We don't see that career progression is a reason to stay either. So we do see it as the main reason for leaving, but we don't see that as a driver staying. It's one of them, but it's not the only driver for staying. And we can probably come on to that a little bit later. So as an organisation, you, I guess, have the privilege of almost having this meta view of multiple industries, different sizes of companies across different geographics. And with that in mind, I'm really interested to see if we could pull out some common themes as to what categorises a great place to work. Could you talk to us about that? Uh, so it's a really interesting question around those consistencies. And one of, one of the things we've done with our framework, and I think that's probably an important place to start, because what our framework does is it's not like other frameworks which say here are you know 12 questions that can unknit an organisational culture, or here are, here are our views of you know, an anagram typically. What we've said is actually there's three areas that are important to an organization, important to its people. And the elements that make up those are the elements of our framework. So the first part of that is about the environment that people work in. So the perceived environment. The next part of that is about the felt experience. So how do people feel at work? And then the final part of that is the positive people outcomes. So when I think about a great place to work, then there is actually multiple layers to that because what we're saying is, is it about an overarching score that predicts the best place to work or is it or is it talking about what does an individual get from that? But certainly one of the things we can talk about is that felt experience and what is, what is the felt experience at work that drives a great place to work and drives positive people outcomes. And we look across this and we can see that actually number one, number one, it's about high purpose. Yeah. And we're not talking about high purpose like teachers have high purpose because they're educating, you know, they're educating people of all ages and they're educating the, the youth of the world as they as they grow into adult. You know, NHS have high purpose because they're caring. They're caring for people who are unwell, they're caring for people who need care. So we're not talking about purpose in that sense as such. What we're talking about is I understand where I fit in the organization. I understand the value of my work. I understand what my work does. And it gives me a sense of purpose to deliver that work. So number one in terms of that is where people feel that they have that purpose. Number two, some people don't really talk about this very often. And, and I didn't before I met Rob. Number two is enjoyment. So people who enjoy their jobs, they are free to enjoy their jobs. There isn't any friction in the way of them getting on and enjoying their job. Yeah. So you know, there's no one that, you know, they've, they've probably got some stretch. They've probably got some challenges in their job, but they fundamentally enjoy their job. In terms of what we see next, then we get into growth. So people that know that they can develop within their roles. And we're not focusing on develop as in, I can now become the manager, the manager's manager, the manager's manager's manager, and soon I'll be the CEO. What we're talking about is stretch, breadth. We're talking about promotion. We're talking about growth. We're talking about learning. If you think about the challenges within workforces across the globe, 
being is the workforce has changed over the past few years. Combination in the UK is a combination of Brexit and the pandemic. And when you think about that and you think about growth within that and you think about learning to a group of, group of people coming in, I saw something around hospitality where they're actively recruiting from two groups. So group number one is people who've retired. And group number two, people who are about to come out of prison. So you've got two groups of people there that have very, very different learning needs. And those learning needs won't be about the ability to be promoted. They'll be about their ability to do the job. They'll be about understanding society. And, you know, that piece that workplace plays into being part of society, you know, what my children learned in school is different to what children learned in school when I was a child. And children at school today are learning different things. You know, there's an obligation somewhere to help people stay on top of that sort of growth. And actually, number four is belonging and number five is autonomy. So if you think about belonging autonomy, I feel like I belong here. I feel like this is a place I can belong. And I feel that I have autonomy in my role. Linking back to that enjoyment piece of my role as well. So those are the themes that we see. When, you, when you're scoring high in that felt experience, you tend to have a great place. Things are getting way of that tend to then be the environment. What would you say are the real key drivers of performance at work with what you've just said in mind about engagement? It's one, it's one of those ones where you think about performance is through a different lens, isn't it? So the CFO's view of performance might be different to the, you know, the operations manager's view of performance versus the individual's view of performance. But rarely have I ever met somebody who goes to work and doesn't have the intention to do work to perform in some way, shape or form. So when you look at the drivers of performance, you also have to look at the, distract, the detractors of performance. You know, we did some work recently with a company where the the feedback to their board, which they were a bit worried about, was you employ great people. Yeah, get out of their way and let them do great work. Yeah, simple as that. And there, there was this almost fear in the organization about talking about that because one of the things we've seen is those those feelings at work that we talked about before, the, the felt experience, the how I feel at work will, will carry somebody over some of the things that get in the way. They'll, they'll, they'll do it because they have purpose. They'll do it because they enjoy their job. But the things that ultimately start grinding somebody down or that feeling down is in the environment. It tends to be things like the tools just not being good enough, the efficiency of the organization, the policies not making sense. How hard is it to get something done? How hard is it to get a decision? How hard is it to get a yes or even a no? I'm fine with both. But, you know, let me know how hard is it to collaborate across organizations or across organizational structure? These are the things that actually are the detractors of performance. So when you think about, you, you know, we can all think about, say, employee burnout, hot topic right now. Yeah. And we talk about somebody who is burning out. Why are they burning out? Well, multiple reasons. But the number one environmental driver of poor well-being, according to our data, is poor organizational effectiveness. People do because they have high purpose, they enjoy their job, they have been treated well in the past, is they will put the extra hours in. So they will overcome a hurdle, a bump in the road, they'll overcome some friction by putting the hours in because there's no other option. They can't suddenly get a better laptop, they can't suddenly get a better forklift truck, they can't suddenly change the environment. So what they do is they change the hours they put in and they do that because they love their job. You can't sustain that. 
And that 10 hours is coming from somewhere else. It's coming from your sleep or it's coming from your family time or it's coming from your personal time. Yeah, you're asking your people to trade off in that situation. So I think when we talk about drivers, I think what we have to look at is how have you set up an environment that, that enables performance? How did you get out of your people's way and let them do a great job? How many times did you step into their way and put a meeting in place, communication they didn't need, a tool that wasn't good enough, a manager who toxic, inefficient, not enabling, power hungry, or I don't know. I mean, there's loads of great managers and loads of poor managers, you know, but are the managers hurdles themselves? Are they getting in the way? Are the colleagues not open to collaboration? And you look at all of that stuff and that's environmental. So environmental drivers of performance are all those things that cause friction. Really interesting. Yeah. So I guess what you're saying there is to drive performance, remove the barriers to performance. <laughs> when you look at, you could, you know, everyone should be able to look back and say, when didn't I do my best work and why was that? You know, I, I can look, I'll look back this week. What, what day? <laughs> I don't know what day is today, Thursday. All the way through the week. I look back this week and I can go, when didn't I do my best work? I didn't do my best work when I was under pressure. Mm. You know, I rushed something out and I made a mistake because I had too much other stuff going on in my life. I had too much other stuff going on and I didn't want to sacrifice too much of my personal life. So what I did was I put some extra hours in, but I still rushed a job. And I didn't do my best work. What would I have been able to do to have done my best work? Would have been actually if I'd had a better structure, if I'd have had different things happen, different things pop up in my diary, I would have created space and time and done that. So some of that is probably about enabling me to make decisions in my own autonomy. So do I have the autonomy to change that and learn going forward? And if the answer is no, who's going to help me? I think it's just that continual review of that stuff. And my question, and it's not an answerable question, my question to the world is, do you understand what gets in the way of your people's ability to perform, their ability to be well, their ability to do all those amazing things? Do you understand it? Or are you, and if I think about my world of employee surveys, or are you just scoring and measuring? Is it a measurement? Or is it a score? Or actually, do we go back to that very first question or first things we were talking about? Do you have the data to be intentional and take action? And I genuinely think so often the answer is no, we have a score. As the CEO of the business, could you give us some insight into what your leadership style looks like? I mean, I guess I'll talk about leadership of the organization as well as line, line management or people management stuff. I think I'm aspirational, as in I'm not someone who looks at and goes, I aspire to be like him, but I'm aspirational as I'm always looking to a horizon going, I aspire for us to be better. So I think the thing that I do in an organization, in my style, is say to people, there's something over there that we could strive towards. This is where we can go. I'm the person that will challenge people to think about what they're doing and could you could you do that better sometimes I'm pretty laid back so I'm a pretty laid back person but that doesn't mean that I am I don't care and I, I think my my approach is I care deeply I care deeply about the people in our business I care deeply about our clients and you know 
some of the things that I will say to our people is we aim for great. And the reason we aim for great is because you aim for good, you'll miss. And sometimes you'll hit great and sometimes you'll hit poor. But if you aim for great, sometimes you'll hit good and sometimes you'll hit exceptional. And I think that in terms of my style, I don't know how I ended up being a CEO other than other than the fact that I aspired to do something better. I aspired to do something better in the employee engagement space, in the feedback industry, and I I did. And I think that's my other style is I've got a mantra, which I've, it's only a recent mantra because I saw it on LinkedIn, but it's always been my mantra, but I never knew it was in this way, which was done is better than perfect. And let's talk about your values. What are they? And why are they important to you? It's interesting. So I do not like inequality. Yeah. And for for years, I I was a trade union rep for years before I was doing anything in terms of HR and people and systems or anything. And the reason I got into that was because I didn't like seeing people treated unfairly. And I got into that world not because I was a trade unionist, but because that was a value of mine. You know, fair, equitable is better than equal. So equitable treatment is better than equal treatment. Fair treatment, treating people as individuals and understanding their needs is something that that drives me. I trust from the get-go as well, because I believe that most people are trustworthy. And that's, that's bitten me on the bum a few times, you know, because you, you come up, we always come up with some people that, you know, for whatever reason in their life, you know, they don't trust or they have a different intention or whatever's going on. So I trust from the get-go. But most most of the time, that plays out. What would you say is the biggest misconception people have about you? I grew up, I grew up on benefits. You know, I grew up and I grew up driving a forklift truck. I grew up in a warehouse. I don't have a degree. I don't have, I went to art college and I walked out of two years in, I walked out of it and said, I'm not doing this anymore. And when it became a wilder, you know, I think the biggest misconception most people have of me is, you know, I am this guy who rocks up, got a few tattoos and, you know, I, I rock up and I'm pretty open and pretty laid back and people I think the misconception is that I think the misconception is that I'm not thinking about stuff or that I'm not considering stuff you know that that laid-back approach and I think whenever it plays out into particularly in the client world where it plays out that I'm sitting in front of a CEO and they're bored and all of a sudden boom the challenge comes in of why did you bother asking these questions if you're not going to do anything about it and all of a sudden it's a what and I understand your business, you know, I have empathy and I understand what a full truck driver, a production worker has to do. I understand what a financial accountant has to do. And all of a sudden you get this. Oh, and I think that's the biggest thing. Well, it's certainly the biggest thing that I think about is how do people perceive my outward approach and appearance versus my delivery. From a well-being perspective, how would you describe your relationship with well-being what do you do to protect and optimize it that's really easy it's awful but it was it was awful before i did this <laughs> if, I'm, <laughs> if i'm honest so it's 
Rob, Rob and I, so Rob's background is he did sports psychology and exercise psychology, and then he moved into organizational psychology. And, you know, he's got his background in all of this stuff, and particularly around motivation. And he gave me this really awesome model that we use ourselves, which is called COMBI. And B is behavior, the behavior that you want. When you look at the COM, which is about capability, opportunity, and motivation. So if somebody has the capability, they have the opportunity, then it's about motivation. So I look at my well-being as a work not started. You know, what I'm trying to tackle is going, do I have the capability to go out for a nice long walk? I do. Do I have the opportunity? I'm working some longer hours than I'd like to, but I do have the opportunity. Do I have the motivation? No, I don't have the motivation. You know, I want to chill out. I want to have a glass of wine. My own focus on my well-being is that physical well-being is something that I got to work on, and I've got to. And that's in my to-do box, though. But let's talk about psychological and financial well-being and social well-being because we believe there's four pillars. Four pillars of well-being. So if I think about how how do I manage my financial well-being? Well, you know, I'm in a business. I'm growing that business. You know, I'm focused on that, but. You know, I have a salary, I'm lucky enough to have a salary and get paid, you know, and I'm lucky enough to have worked for some great organizations where I have pensions, you know, and savings and share schemes. So I'm fine with that. Psychological well-being, how do I protect and optimize my psychological well-being? I thrive off people. I thrive off talking about problems and talking stuff through. I'm very open about when I'm feeling a little anxious. I'm very open about when I have something or I am spiraling in some way very open about that i'm very open very lucky to work with the people i work with as well because i think we have this open environment where we can talk about that but very lucky that i can jump on a call with rob and say I had one of those 2 a.m moments and i was thinking are we doing the right thing for this are we doing the right thing for that and we just talk it through that underlying anxiety is built up a little bit you feel it under your diaphragm very, very, very lucky to have that in our world. Very lucky to, you know, have people that will check in on me as well. So people that spot a change in behavior and I'll get a little message. Are you okay, Nick? Is everything okay? You know, you are, you normally stay on the call a bit longer or you would normally be more talkative, you know, and I'm very lucky to work in that environment. So in terms of that, I'm lucky to have people around me. And then social well-being is about knowing that you have worth in society and knowing that actually there's a place for you in this world. What's the most difficult decision you've had to make in your career so far? Depends, if I'm honest. So, you know, it was a difficult decision when I left Tesco, but it, was, it turned out to be the right decision. I, you know, I thought about that a lot. It was a difficult decision to jump from working at Carlsberg and start my own business. You know, but it was it was that. So in terms of difficult decisions, I think if I'm honest, I think I either I'm very lucky or when we look at difficulty through a lens of what, you know, your my own personal lens, the difficult decisions I have to make tend to be in, in our business tend to be about what are we going to do with our financials? What's the plan for the year ahead? Are we going to recruit? Are we not going to recruit? Are we going to invest? And they're, they're difficult. They're difficult in as much as they're complex. If I think about something that is difficult, it tends to be more of a people thing. And I, I think I'm lucky that I've always been able to approach my life through my values. 
And then difficult decisions are not difficult. If anything, they're probably uncomfortable. Yeah, the decision is the right thing to do. It may be an uncomfortable thing, but if you're led by your values, that uncomfortable factor sits with me. I don't think I have ever had to be in a position where I've had to make a decision that I've said was so difficult that it sits in my memory bank. I've had to be in difficult situations. I've had to deal with people that I'm values led and, you know, something that you do. What subjects do you think the next generation should be being taught about in schools today to help prepare them for the world of the future? I mean, I think there's a lot of technical stuff that people are already talking about and talking about how people need to value, you know, AI is an obvious one that people talk about, how the complexities of that. But I think it probably goes the other side of that. So I think it's the people side of that, which is about if AI is a technical skill, what is what does ethical AI look like? What does ethical use of machine learning look like? What does ethical data look like? So I think there's a piece around you know, the next generation that's coming through school system now or coming to the workplace now. I think there is something around ethics and being able to say ethics isn't just a thing where we can, you know, it's just one. I think when my kids at school did ethics, it was it was very different to how I would have approached ethics. And ethics in the workplace and ethics in society are probably going to be broadly similar, but far less complex in the workplace because you're dealing with limited data sets, limited technologies and limited groups of people. Whereas in society, you're talking about everyone in the world. So I think, you know, being able to be critical thinkers, I think that's a really key thing. Using spreadsheets, I think, I think every, every, the minute you can hit a keyboard learn how to use a spreadsheet i'm amazed about when i sit there and say to somebody so we're going to pull a spreadsheet together and they're like i can't i don't know how to do anything on a spreadsheet and like they must teach this stuff you know equals v lookup come on but you know the reality is no that's a joke that's a joke i don't think people should be taught spreadsheets work work can teach people that i think it is going to be around stuff around critical thinking ethics and and probably balance balance view of the world that lies into that critical thinking you know the thing that keeps me awake at night is when i see my own family my own children when i see you know their friends when i see younger people at the moment and, and they consume media from all around the world that's fine if you can apply a critical lens that says that's happening in that society is that happening in my society? Is that happening in my community? Is this a global problem that is for everybody? Or is that a problem in that society? So should I care about that society? Is my action against that society? And I think when you apply that critical thinking, I think actually when you take that into the world of work, it makes you challenge and question. Love that. What's your ultimate life goal? It used to be to buy a house in on the coast in Tempe, somewhere like that, and go and look at the sea. I grew up on I grew up on the coast. I grew up on the sea and then moved away from the sea as you can. You know, and there's something about the seaside which is, or well, certainly for me, is I like to sit and stare out to sea and I think about two things. The first thing I think about is like I can't see anything on the horizon other than sea. So it's quite a long way that way. And then I sit there and go, I bet it's quite deep as well. Like there's a lot there's a lot below that horizon 
you know, and it's a nice calming place to be. So the feeling, the feeling is probably my ultimate life goal, the feeling of being calm, the feeling of being content, the feeling of, you know, being having time to be there for other people and to to be able to enjoy the things, you know, that I've worked hard for. I think ultimately my ultimate life goal is, is probably those things and a wish of those things for the people around me. How would you like to be remembered? Fondly. Probably. You know, I don't think it's a thing. I don't think people will go, you know, uh, you know, Nick. Nick was an architect building the People Experience Hub, you know, if the People Experience Hub becomes this, you know, huge thing. I don't I don't know that anyone will remember that. You know, it's I think what I'd like to be remembered for is when people say the interactions I had with Nick were positive. The interactions I had with Nick was this. Being remembered is a privilege. And I think when people think of me and they go, you know, in a situation, if somebody was to sit there and go, I, I remember when me and Nick did this. I had a great time. I remember when me and Nick did this. He gave me some great advice. That would be lovely. But if I'm honest, just a nice guy. Okay, Nick, we're on to the quick fire round now. So I'd like to start with asking you what's something that you've achieved that you're proud of? Being a dad. Oh, lovely. What one word best describes you? Chaotic and gentle. <laughs> How did you react to your greatest failure? Sat on my bum, fell down and sat on my bum and probably had a right old mope about it. What's something you regret and you would have done differently in hindsight? I think I would have thought differently about my tattoos. Wow. Okay. What do you like most about yourself? I think it's reflection. I, I think I like that I can reflect. What's your biggest area of development? I think it's in being more structured. Tell us about something that you're passionate about. Probably art and music. Love that. And what's the best piece of advice you would say you've ever been given? So at Tesco, the group employee relations manager, when I applied to be a group employee relations manager and didn't get the job, said to me, don't assume because you're a, a square block and we've given you a round hole to feel that you need to change. Brilliant. Finally, what's one book or podcast that you'd recommend our subscribers get involved with? The podcast I would recommend checking out Beth and Naden from Benefex's podcast. Brilliant. Nick, you've given us some superb insights today. Thanks for joining us on the podcast. It was great to be here and thank you for letting me come on. Thanks for joining us today. We really hope you enjoyed the episode. Remember to like and subscribe. See you soon.